0: So glad you guys are here. My name is Brandon Gwynn. I'm one of the pastors here at the city. Glad you guys joined us today. And um, I just got back from a a week-long mission trip to Mission Arlington, got back on Friday. And the last service I said I got back yesterday, and I was very confused about that. It wasn't yesterday. It feels like it was yesterday. It was was a a long, awesome week. We got to take a a few families down there, some, some students from our city youth group, and just minister with... Mission Arlington, we got to load trucks and move food and, and serve people. And in the afternoons, we did VBS at this apartment complex where we knocked on doors and invited the kids out to to hear about Jesus. God did some, some really cool things, but man, I can tell you, it was hot. Like, it, I know you know this, but Dallas... Heat is just different than Lubbock heat, you know. And there was one day there we were out there with no wind, 109 degrees, like 40 percent humidity. <laughs> I've never felt heat like this in my life, but you know it's good to 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 suffer a little bit for the sake of the gospel, right? We we got to we got to kind of grind and get through it, and God did some awesome awesome things. And um, just to recap where we've been, we're starting a new chapter of Luke today, chapter 10. Anytime we start a new chapter, it's like Christmas morning for me. It's like, it, it's exciting, right? We get to, to kind of get into something new, some new territory. If you missed last week, uh, Matt, our, our new youth pastor taught, and it was awesome. You should go back and watch it if you missed it. And man, does he have energy. Uh, I mean, oh, to be young again, right? Um, But if we're being honest, I've never had that much energy, and I likely never will. So just sit back and and take your nap. I'll wake you up when I'm done, okay? We'll We'll be fine. But we're in Luke 10. Jesus is is less than a year and a half away from the cross. He's got a limited amount of time with his disciples. If you remember in chapter 9 in the beginning, he sends out the 12 to start doing the work of the ministry, empowers them to heal people, to cast out demons and all of this. And and today is another step in that direction as he, he gets his disciples ready to be without him. And the tide is kind of changing here in his life and ministry. There's starting to be this kind of growing antagonism against Jesus we're making this turn from the revelation of Jesus as he's kind of teaching people what what God is like and about the kingdom of God and who he is it's turning from the revelation of Jesus to the rejection of Jesus there's already people kind of plotting against him he's starting to just go a little bit too far for some of the spiritual religious elites of his day and so things are starting to kind of turn a little bit Uh, We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 10, like I said, starting in verse one they It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible. The best way, as we always say, is on our app through the message notes. The verses are there. The points are all there. It's a good way to stay connected to the message. So let's start reading. Chapter 10, verse 1. So the Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Now go and remember that I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor extra pair of sandals. And don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Whenever you enter someone's home, first say, may God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, the blessing will stand. If they are not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you. Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you now. So we'll pause there for just a minute. So, so, so. This, what we're witnessing here, in the sending out of the 72, is the birth of missions. At the beginning of chapter 9, like we've said, he sent the 12 out to around Galilee to to Jewish communities. This is the first time where, where people are going out to share the good news of the gospel, that the Messiah has come, the kingdom of God is near. This is the first time it's getting to Gentile villages, now, an interesting note here. I thought this 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 was very very interesting to me. And it almost lends even more credibility to scripture. Luke's account here is the only one to record this event. And you might say say why is that? Well, if you think about it, every second of every day of Jesus' life and ministry is not recorded. There's a lot that that we don't get to hear about. All of these guys that that wrote the Gospels, and especially Luke, who went about interviewing people and gathering evidence and interviewing eyewitnesses to kind of put together the, this this timeline of Jesus' life and ministry and ultimately death and resurrection. Uh, and he, he's, he's doing all of this, gathering evidence, and his, his, his audience, his primary audience, was Gentiles. So it would make sense that, that his account would include something that, that they would find interesting, that this was kind of the first time that the word of the Lord is kind of going into these Gentile areas. You know, the, the, for the most part, they're, they're hitting the highlights. They're, the, every single gospel is not exactly the same because you have different people writing it from different perspectives and for different audiences. It's pretty cool. So he's choosing these 72 men and he sends them out in pairs ahead of him, everywhere he's about to go, right? He sends them out. And you might say, why Why pairs? You know, right, that's, that's, that's only 36 groups going out. He could have all 72. Well, in his wisdom, he knew they would be able to, to support each other, to encourage each other, to have someone to go together. He, he's kind of pulling from this principle of Solomon from Ecclesiastes 4, you might have heard this before, where it says two are better than one. They can help each other. If one falls, there's someone there to to pick him up. If a a person is standing alone, they can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and and conquer, right? So he, he sends them out in pairs so they can support each other, do the work of the ministry with each other. And so like, much like John the Baptist did, you know, before Jesus started his ministry, you have These 72 going out to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare the way for Jesus, going into these villages, Jewish and Gentile alike, and kind of preparing for Jesus to come himself. And then in verse two, this is probably probably the the, the most talked about uh, verse in, in this chapter for sure. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. You've heard this before, right? The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few, but but there's more here than just meets the eye. Jesus isn't just, you know, spouting facts here. He's not just looking at the numbers. What Jesus is saying here is, is rooted in his compassion for people. Do you remember before he fed the 5,000 a couple of weeks ago, he looked over the crowd and he was moved with compassion. It, it was breaking his heart to see these the sheep without a shepherd. We learned a new word. If you remember, splangnizamai. It's going to come up in just a second. There it is. The Greek word, right? Splangnizamai. This is, this is literally referring to, to your, your guts, your physical anatomy. Like it, It's such a powerful term because it's talking about Jesus being so moved, like his heart so broken that he physically feels it. And the same thing is going on here. He's seeing that the harvest is plentiful. What is that saying? There's so many people that are heading towards eternal judgment, separation from God. There's very few workers. It's breaking his heart. Since, since we don't naturally, like, we, our natural tendency is to be selfish, if we're being honest, right? We, we don't naturally care for people and don't naturally think about their souls. And we definitely don't understand the absolute horrors of Hell. But Jesus does. He knows where they're heading. And he's so moved with with compassion. It's brought on by his knowledge of what awaits those who refuse to repent. The harvest he's talking about isn't just bringing people into the coming of God. It's the gathering of sinners for their final judgment. It breaks his heart. The harvest is plentiful, but the the workers are few. You see you see the tension here. All of humanity is heading for God's judgment, eternal hell. Only a few are working to reach them with the saving truth of the gospel. It moved the heart of Jesus and it should move your heart as well. True evangelism begins with this awareness of the, of the, the desperation of the, of, of the situation that, that our world is in. There's so many heading down that road, so few to do anything about it. So, so, so what are we supposed to do? Well, he tells us, he says, to pray. He's sending them to do something about it, right, to share the message, but he also says to pray to the Lord of the harvest. God's wrath is coming, And Jesus is telling them to pray to God that the most people possible be rescued from that wrath. This is another kind of paradox of the gospel, this upside down kingdom. So think about this for a minute. Wrap your head around it. Here you have the judge, the righteous judge that is commanding his people to pray that more sinners be saved from his judgment. Let me say it this way. The judge and executioner was eventually himself executed to save others from being executed by him. This this is his heart of love for mankind and what's breaking Jesus' heart, seeing multitudes of people heading for this ultimate fate, the ones that reject the good news of the gospel. It's breaking his heart and he's telling them, Yes, you're going, but you need to pray, pray that God would change their hearts. Because if we're being honest, the gospel is offensive to people. It's a stumbling block. It's a, why, why is it offensive? Well, because before you said yes to Jesus, you had to come to the place that you admitted before God that you're a sinner and that you're in need of saving And that if he doesn't intervene, you can't have a relationship with God and you're gonna spend eternity separated from him. So there's a lot that has to to happen there for someone's heart to be softened up, to to be able to, to even hear that message of the gospel. So Jesus is saying, you need to pray to God that he would soften their hearts, that he would work on them from the inside out. But then he gives them a warning. Just like he did back in chapter 9 to the 12. He gives them a warning that he's sending them as lambs in the midst of wolves. Lambs and wolves. That doesn't seem like a very fair fight to me. He's sending them out as the lambs in the midst of wolves. He's warning them about the persecution they're about to to encounter. When they go on mission for Jesus, it's going to cost them something. And the imagery here of, of, of a lamb is just so so passive, right? It's not aggressive. He's telling them that, that there's, no, there's no attempting to convert people by force. They're supposed to present the message. Then it's up to, up to the people to either accept it or reject it. They're supposed to respond willingly, not by force. This, this sets the Christian message apart from large segments of of religions in the world, segments of, of Islam and Hinduism and a lot of tribal religions, he's saying, listen, you're not going in with hostility, but you are going to face hostility. There's danger, rejection. It's going to be waiting for them at every single turn. And again, in Judaism, this image of the wolf, it's representing something that devours everything. Last week, Matt mentioned this, but in Acts chapter one, Jesus gives the great commission. He says, you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And he talked about how the word, the word witness has in its roots, our word for martyr. It's not just about going and sharing, going and telling. It it, it means you're putting your life on the line for this message. It might very well cost you everything. And on top of all this, to the 72, he tells them, oh, by the way, don't take anything with you. The same thing he told the 12 in chapter 9 again. We're not going to spend a lot of time here because we covered it, but he's, he's telling them to rely on God for their needs. Like, he's going to take care of you. He, he's going to prepare people's hearts, and he's going to get you what you need to be able to move from place to place. He says, don't bounce around, don't try to get rich, but don't turn down hospitality either. But also, there's something here where, where he's, he, he's kind of encouraging them to, to leave those things behind that are going to distract them. The mission's urgency and, and the disciples, they, 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 they didn't need this distraction of stuff with them and the problems that come along with that stuff. Ministry is supposed to be the priority, they're supposed to be concerned about doing the work of the ministry, going on mission. That was their primary concern. And then God would provide the rest. And then he empowers them. He empowers them to do miracles, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and to tell them the kingdom of God is near. Now, this is something that these 72 couldn't have possibly grasped in that moment because for generations, you know, they had been waiting on this Messiah that was promised to them and in their mind, this was going to be a military thing that happened, right? A physical kingdom that Jesus was going to be the king and kick the Romans out and all this stuff. The kingdom here, the kingdom of God that Jesus is referring to is not a political kingdom, an earthly military kingdom. It's the rule and reign of God in people's hearts and lives and in a prelude to the kingdom of God that is to come. We, we as Americans know very little about kingdoms and kingships. But a kingdom is is a realm or a a territory that's ruled by an absolute monarch, right? The the absolute authority. In the kingdom of God, he is the only sovereign. He is the, the king of kings. He is the lord of lords. He sits on the throne. He calls the shots. He's in control, period. This is the kingdom that... Jesus is coming to, to share. But, but you can even take this literally. Literally Jesus being in the form of a man, but also God. He's God in a body. We've talked about that a lot. He is God. He has physically, literally come near to man. He is on the earth. He is walking among them. He is reaching out through sending Jesus to redeem mankind. That's the message. God has come near to you. He has made the first Move This God of, of your, your forefathers, it's, it's, it's no longer a, a distant relationship. There, there is no curtain, there is no priest, there is no ritual that's separating God from his people any longer. He's come near. Then in verse 10, keep reading. But if a town refuses to welcome you, go out into its streets and say, We wipe even the dust of your town from our feet to show that we have abandoned you to your fate and know this the kingdom of God is near he's saying that again almost as a warning I assure you even wicked Sodom will be better off than such a town on judgment day what sorrow awaits you Chorazin and Bethsaida For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. Yes, Tyre and Sidon. It will be better off on judgment day. We'll be better off on judgment day than you. And you, people of Capernaum, will you be honored in heaven? No. You will go down to the place of the dead or Hades. See the disciples were supposed to go and try to find people of peace, people that were were open and receptive to the message of the kingdom of God, but if they weren't, they were supposed to move on. If they don't accept you, if they refuse you, wipe the dust off your feet. We talked about that again in chapter 9, shake the dust off of these Gentile villages. It's, it's symbolic of the, the separation, right? They, this is something they understood very well. They didn't even want to be defiled by the dirt of these, these towns. But now Jesus is saying the same thing of these Jewish villages that don't accept this message he's giving them a warning jesus warning here is not hearsay it's not something that that he's guessing about he knows firsthand from the judge himself and he calls them out he lists six different villages six different cities three of them jewish three of them gentile calls them by name and probably to everyone's amazement, he's proclaiming here that the Jewish cities would face more severe judgment if they turn their back on this message. He says it will be more tolerable. He, he's, he seems to be saying here that there are different levels of judgment, different degrees of, of punishment dropped on the unbelieving sinners at this throne of, of judgment in the final days, the final sentencing. He seems to be saying that in this place of never-ending torment, there will be different levels of punishment. He says that the judgment of Tyre and Sidon will be less severe than Chorazin and Bethsaida. Tyre and Sidon are Gentile communities. Chorus and Bethsaida are Jewish ones. He's saying these Gentile communities, had they seen the miracles that you've seen, and heard the teaching, they would have already repented. They, they would be, he mentioned sackcloth and ashes. He's talking about just a, a mourning and repentance over their, their sin. But for the towns that refuse, it will be worse for them than Sodom, the epitome of evil. You remember what happened there? He said Sodom would even face lesser judgment than any city in Israel. I mean, that, that would just be incomprehensible to these people. And the one that seems to get the worst of it is Capernaum. What's the deal with Capernaum? He's talking about them receiving the the, the most harsh, the most severe judgment. Why? Well, see, Capernaum was where Jesus, when he was was traveling around in in Galilee, that was kind of his headquarters. He'd been there a lot. They had heard all the teachings, they had seen all the miracles. They, they knew who Jesus was and what he was claiming. But he says to Capernaum, does heaven await you? No, no, it does not. But Hades does. But get this, th- there is no record in all of the gospels of Capernaum being hostile towards Jesus. There's no record of of them trying to run him out of town. There's no record of them mocking him or ridiculing him. So, So what is going on here? Listen, their sin was that they tolerated him. They'd seen it all. They'd heard all the stories. They'd witnessed it themselves. And they were, they were cool with him being there, right? But, but there was nothing in them that was ready to submit to him. That they simply tolerated him. This should sound familiar to us. Living in the Bible Belt where we do. Where, where our city is full of people who are cool with Jesus, but who won't submit to him. where people are just kind of indifferent to this message of the gospel. But Jesus is saying that indifference, indifference to Jesus is just as damning as outright rejection. Because see, when, when God makes an offer of peace to, to a, a world that's dying and heading towards ultimate judgment and separation from him, when he makes that offer of peace and it's, it's ignored, that's offensive to him. It brings to mind Revelation 3, where, where Jesus is warning this, this church in Laodicea. He says, be hot or be cold, right? But, but don't be what? Don't be lukewarm. He says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. How many of us, and how many of our churches are full of people who are tolerant of Jesus, but have never submitted to him? Verse 16, he says to the disciples, anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me. Anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. Anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. So here's what he's saying to all of us. Ignoring is rejecting. To to ignore the message of the gospel, to hear it and to not do something with it, to just simply tolerate it is to reject it. My question for you today, how many of you have, have heard the message of the gospel? You, you felt that tug on your heart. You said in service after service after service, and you may call yourself a Christian like you're a Christian in name, but, but when it comes to a real personal daily relationship with him, you know you don't have one. How many times have you turned a deaf ear? And I'm pleading with you today as, as Jesus was with these 72, he, he felt this, this urgency of the message. Time is short. And if you've never surrendered to him, you've never started a relationship with him, do that today. Don't waste another second of your life. To reject the message of the kingdom is to face judgment by the God who offers this free gift of peace, salvation. So I, I'm asking you today, make, make, take that step. Remember, the, the gospel's offensive. It's a stumbling block. You, you have to get to the place where you humble yourself enough to say, God, I'm a sinner. I, I need forgiveness. I know I can't earn that on my own. So God, I, I put my faith in Jesus, what he did for us on the cross. When he who knew no sin became sin for us, laid his life down willingly for us, Then he rose from the dead and now we have that opportunity to just simply take the free gift that God is offering us, put our faith in Jesus and start a relationship with him. Maybe today is your day to no longer ignore the message. The kingdom of God is near and he wants to be near to you. Verse 17, when the 72 disciples return. They joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. So, so, so the mission's completed, right? They come back again, just like kind of chapter 9 with the 12. They, they come back after seeing all this amazing stuff that they were able to do, the, the casting out demons and, and healing people They were preaching, and they come back absolutely jacked up on fire. They, they can't believe the authority that they have. Even the demons obey when we use the name of Jesus. But see, Jesus sees something that maybe we don't, definitely that they didn't. He, he sees that they're excited about the wrong things. They're thrilled with the, the power they have, right? And his response to them illustrates for us again why they needed Jesus so much and why they still had so much to learn. You remember last week, Jesus starts predicting his own death and the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest among them, You know, like completely missing the moment, completely tone deaf in those moments. They have so much to learn. This is another one of those moments. And Jesus, he tells them what he saw in these moments, what what his perspective was in verse 18. He says, yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. He's saying, you know, I... I, could, I, I saw. We don't know if it was an actual vision or something that just in the spiritual realm that that he sees happening because of what's coming. Right, the start of this new covenant, the fact that he's about to defeat sin and death once and for all. He's saying, "I, I, I see Satan falling like lightning." A lot of people think that he's referring here back to Isaiah chapter fourteen, where. It's talking about the the fall of the the king of Babylon, which a lot of people think that is referencing, also paralleled with the fall of Satan from grace in the very beginning, where it says, how you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning, you have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. But instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead. In other words, Hades. Jesus is seeing seeing the, the whole picture is coming into focus, right? Satan is falling. He's saying, I have all the authority. God has given me the authority and Jesus is telling him, I'm giving that authority to you. My authority is your authority. My my ultimate purpose and mission of of man's deliverance and reconciliation is now your ultimate purpose for your life. My conflict with Satan is now your conflict with Satan, but my ultimate victory is your victory. He says, you can walk among snakes. Nothing, Nothing will injure you. Guys, I don't do snakes, okay? Like... I don't do snakes. They're the worst. Uh, I don't know how people like snakes or have them as pets. I think there's probably something wrong with you if you have one. But since I was a kid, no lie, I've had a recurring dream, I don't know, 40, 50 times. They're They're all a little different, but they have the exact same theme. In the dream, it's just common knowledge that snakes are very, very fast and you can't outrun them. You know, like they say, don't try to outrun a bear. It's like that in the dreams. Like you just know, don't run because they'll catch you. But I always run. And they all, so so another is, I probably first had this dream when I was like six years old. And it's like, it's like the snakes are wearing GoPro cameras. And I get to watch them come at my heels and nip at them as I'm trying to run foolishly away from them, right? Snakes are evil. I'm just telling you, there's a reason that Satan in, in the beginning was, was a serpent, right? Uh, snakes, I think what scripture is trying to tell us is snakes are Satan. So, so (laughs) I should have made that one of my takeaways, but if you have a snake, let it go. Um, but he's, he's telling them. He's calling back here, when he's talking about the the snake, he's calling back to Genesis 3 where God told Satan that the seed of the woman, Jesus, will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. He's, He's talking here for all to hear, for all of us to hear that Satan's authority is broken. It's over. It's about to be finito, done, finished, right? Like lightning, boom, it's over. Jesus is winning the ultimate victory and he's defeated Satan once and for all. And he's encouraging the disciples that, that, listen, yes, you have power over the enemy because of, because of me, but that's not why you should be rejoicing. You should be rejoicing because your name is in the book. He, he's, again, referring back to Jesus, knowing what awaits people that reject his message Eternal separation from him, eternal punishment. He, he's, he's seeing that whole picture and he's like, listen, if you want to rejoice about something, rejoice that you are on the right side. Your name is in the book. Then Jesus praised this prayer of thanksgiving. In verse 21, he says, at that same time, Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And he said, oh, father. Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father. No one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then when they were alone, he turned to the disciples and said, Blessed are the eyes that see what you have seen. I tell you, many prophets and kings longed to see what you see, but they didn't see it. And they longed to hear what you hear, but didn't hear it. Jesus here takes a moment. He's overcome with joy. He takes a moment to thank God for, for, for the way he hides wisdom, ultimate wisdom, ultimate truth from people who think they've got it figured out from the clever He's revealing himself to the child. Like he's saying here, salvation is not restricted to some kind of spiritual elite like was common in their day with these these, these, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. It wasn't for the worldly wise or the ones that think they're smart who claim to have some kind of elevated secret knowledge. He's saying there is no secret knowledge. There is no holy man in a holy building that has to stand between you and God. God has hidden ultimate truth so it can't be discovered by people that that try to figure it out with earthly wisdom. It's like foolishness to them. Only by... His self-revelation in Scripture and through His Holy Spirit working on us, revealing things to us—that that's that's what brings the truth to His people from the very beginning. And Luke has documented this. We see He chooses to use regular people, people that walk in humility, that are nothing to anybody, right? But but that are that are willing to 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 have that truth revealed to them, have their hearts softened. It reminds me of Psalm eight when. David is, is talking about uh, out of the mouths of infants that they cry out in praise to the Father. His kingdom is here for those that have faith like a child. And again, he, he's trying to get the disciples to see how truly fortunate they are in, in us as well. See, it was the prophet's, Reading through the Old Testament and the prophets, like the, their whole purpose on this earth was to point towards Jesus. They were, everything they wrote was about Jesus. They were point, pointing towards this day when the Messiah would come and Jesus is telling him, listen, the kings and the prophets would have loved to be where you are. Like they would have loved to hear my voice and, and to see me, but they didn't. We are so very fortunate. What a privilege that we have seen the Father. In Jesus. So given given all this, so like what are we supposed to do? Remember, we don't always want to be about hearing truth and just getting more knowledge, but how do we apply this to our lives? Here's a a few takeaways I feel like God is is leading us towards today. The first one is is this: We, we need to break. Our hearts need to break, like Jesus did. Be broken over the plentiful harvest and the few. Workers, we, we have to, again, borrow from Jesus' perspective of all these people heading towards destruction and how there are very few to do anything about it. It moved the heart of Jesus. It broke it. It should also break our hearts. We got to feel it. We, we don't have, as, as disciples of Jesus, we don't have the luxury of turning a blind eye. We have to face the brutal facts. It has to break our hearts to the point where we we do something about it. Jesus had that sense of urgency. Time is short. That's why he said to pray that God would send more workers. Because when it's time to bring in the harvest, it's time to work. I don't know if you know anything about harvesting. I I grew up on a a cotton farm. My dad was a cotton farmer my, my entire life. I spent a lot of time out there uh, spraying weeds and running tractors and stuff. The one thing I never got to help with was harvest time because it was in the fall, I was in school, but I'm telling you when, when that cotton is ready to harvest, that is all that matters. It is a race to get it in before it gets destroyed. Like you're racing against the clock. My dad lived out there 16, 18 hours a day for, for in the morning when the dew would kind of dry up and it, it, would, you know, it was kind of dry enough to not affect the, the, the cotton stripper from getting all the cotton off, off of the stalks. That's when they would start and they would just go well after midnight sometimes. My mom would bring meals out to him. He would eat out there in the field. Like it was a race against the clock because there were so many things that could destroy the harvest. Weather, insects, I mean, all all kinds of different things. Just a little bit of moisture can degrade it. It can can make it drip onto the the ground, basically, where it can't be harvested. It's just completely wasted. There's an urgency when it comes time to harvest. We have to start feeling that urgency of our message, realize how short time really is. Imagine this for a second. Imagine you you have a a little cooler, a little ice chest with, with a human heart in it. And you're responsible for getting, it, for getting it from the donor to the recipient. It's a race against the clock. If the recipient doesn't get it, they're going to die. Think about the sense of urgency you would feel if you got to get that across town or something. I mean, would you be stopping at Starbucks? Probably not. Would you be worried about offending someone in traffic or, or being embarrassed or something? Like, like The only thing that would matter to you is getting that where it needs to go. There, there's an urgency here because... Ultimate, eternal life and death is at stake. It is a life and death situation. We have to let our hearts break. We have to feel the urgency and the weight of the message. And then, like Jesus said, we have to pray. You let your heart break and let that lead you to pray for opportunities, for for people's hearts to change. Pray for people in your life. Look at your circles of influence. You are strategically placed for a very specific purpose. You're where you are for a reason. The people in your life are there for a reason. You are in their life for a reason. If you don't tell them who will, listen, I know this is uncomfortable. It's difficult to think about, but you have to let your mind go there. People you love. There are people you love heading towards eternal punishment. That's not gonna be a good time. Does it break your heart? Or do you just turn a blind eye, try not to think about it? This is why we, we talk a lot about making name lists. This is why it's so crucially important. We talk a lot about this when it comes time for like Easter or Christmas Eve or whatever, but this should be a, a really a daily habit for all of us to maybe have a, a Post-it note or something where, where people's names are written down, people in your life that you know and love, friends and family, coworkers, whatever, and you know they need Jesus, somewhere where you can see their name every day and let your heart break for them. To remind you to pray for them, to to pray for opportunities for them. Maybe it's time you make your own name list and start (laughs) refusing to turn a blind eye. And then let our hearts break. we got to pray. Then we need to live. Devote your life to following Jesus. There's there's a lot here, right? So so what does it mean to live? What does it mean to, to live following Jesus? One of the ways we can do that is to live with joy. Live with joy, rejoicing in the right things. Again, maybe your life isn't going the way you want it to. Maybe you're going through difficult things, but, but Jesus is saying rejoice that your name is written in the book. Do you remember what it felt like when you, you first surrendered your heart to Jesus? Do you really remember the joy of your salvation? Maybe it's time for some of us like David to pray, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation, are you full of joy about the fact that you're you're going to heaven one day? So, see, remember, it's a, it's our mission in life to carry that message of the gospel with us, to live the gospel message, to make disciples. But his warning to the seventy-two: Don't don't take stuff with you, right? You don't you don't want to be distracted. You don't want to be weighed down by the stuff of life. My question for you is: Truly, what is your source your, your source of joy in your life? What brings you joy? What what things in your life do you celebrate and put on social media? Tell stories about. What are you turning to when you need a pick me up? When you're stressed out, it is. Jesus truly your source of joy we've got to live with joy we also have to live with authority live with authority remember Jesus said God has given me all authority I now give it to you you, you, can, you can walk among the snakes no one's going to harm you evil can't touch you we can walk in victory guys as believers we take so much garbage from the enemy that's trying to take us out when we don't have to we, we buy into so many of his lies when we don't have to. We just accept whatever he gives us. We, 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 we take so much from him when he's already lost the war, like it's already over. Jesus said, it is finished. We have the, the power and authority through Jesus and his Holy Spirit in us to put him in his place. The word says, resist the devil and he will, will flee. Over the last few years, our, our kids different times have been afraid of things in their room and just afraid of evil things, you know, what's hiding in the closet or even demonic things. And I've said this over and over. Listen, listen, you're, you're a Jesus person. Like you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. The enemy can't touch you. This is a Jesus house. The, the enemy, Satan's not welcome here. We have authority as believers to win these Battles. What lies are you accepting from the enemy? What what battles are you forfeiting in your life? Through just your own life, or your finances, or your kids, or, or your relationships, what, what are you forfeiting to the enemy just because you simply won't engage in the battle? You won't pray for things. You won't claim that authority that that He's given you. And finally, we have to live the gospel. Evangelism is our mission from God to a lost world, right? It's our purpose on this earth to bring what God has given us to the rest of the world. When we, C.S. Lewis said this, he says, when we lose touch with eternity, we are eternally out of step. When we lose our sense of mission, we, we are no longer on the same page with God. We're just not interested in the same things when we're not focused on the mission of God bringing the gospel to a dying world we aren't on the same page we are to be about the work of our father evangelism is the hallmark of the true Jesus follower are we in our lives looking for people of peace people that are open and receptive to that message No matter where you go or what you do or what you do for a living, you you are always on mission. You are his ambassador. You carry him with you. So my question for you is what are you doing with this, this authority that God has, these circles of influence that you have? What are you doing with it? What are you doing with your relationships? Are we praying? Are we realizing what a what a privilege it is to like like Paul told Timothy that we are God's fellow workers. We are co-workers with Christ in this mission? You know we on this mission trip, we spent the afternoons in these apartment complexes, and they were rough. I mean, rough. just everywhere you go, just, overwhelming smells of, of pot and you have you know we're knocking on these people's doors and asking if they have kids they want to come out to the VBS or whatever and um, you know you might get a door open just dark inside and out comes a two, four, six year old, three kids or whatever and then the door shuts and just pot smoke billowing out of the, the room we had a, a 12 and 13 year old girls in the middle of our bible story run off around the corner to smoke their own you know and it just you, you just see the the brokenness in some of them and in some obvious signs of even abuse and, and I mean you th- this is why missions is, is so and even these short-term trips yeah I know we didn't go to Africa we went to, to Arlington right but there are people all over who need Jesus and the good thing about these these short-term mission trips is like you can't just ignore what's happening like you you're forced to look at their faces. You can't just pretend that they aren't heading towards hell. You you get to look in their eyes, you get to hear their stories. And if you let yourself go there, it it absolutely shatters your heart. So, So that's what I'm praying for us today that not only would God do something in us, you know, as we're, we're praying for, for him to send more workers. God, send me. Send me. If you just bow your heads, close your eyes just for a second. I don't know what God's speaking to you today. I don't know what he's He's, he's whispering to your heart in these, these moments, but I just ask you in, in these moments to lean into that and, and just be open to what he's, he's asking of you. Maybe it's starting a relationship with him. Maybe it's just getting off the sidelines. Maybe, you know, it's not just going along with our normal lives like like everything's okay when all around us people are heading towards their ultimate destruction. It is coming soon. God, I pray that we wouldn't be fooled into thinking everything's okay. We wouldn't be sticking our head in the sand, pretending everything's okay, that we'd be willing to look the hard truth dead in the face and be willing to say, I I, I won't stand for this anymore, God. I I have to do something that we would be on mission everywhere we go. Our hearts would break. We We would pray to you, the Lord of the harvest, and we'd be willing to go to live out that gospel message we'd be your ambassador everywhere we go, everyone we talk to, that we would just be shining Jesus, a light shining into the darkness. God, do that in us. No, no more passivity, no more just going through the motions, but God, living on mission, on purpose for your glory. God, change us in your name.